With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. I was also a Biden delegate, but more importantly, I was also a Watergate special prosecutor and wrote a book called The Watergate Girl about that experience as the only woman on the team. I'm also the person who wears hashtag Jill's pins. And today's pin is a very special one because our guest is Jonathan Carroll, the author of Betrayal, a very revelatory book about the Trump administration's uh, final days and and more than just the final days, actually the whole Trump administration. Um, and the pin I'm wearing is a gift wrap book. So it seemed appropriate for Jonathan Carroll's book and for my own. I hope you'll think about buying both of them as Christmas gifts or Hanukkah gifts. Throughout his term in office, former President Trump worked to undermine the fundamentals of democracy, degrading the press, undercutting the rule of law, and putting himself over the interests of the public. But what we saw during the first three years of his presidency arguably was just the tip of the iceberg, whether it be the mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic or inciting a full-blown insurrection on January 6th. Donald Trump and the actions of those throughout his administration during its final months left an indelible stain on American politics, democracy, and our image internationally. In order to prevent history from becoming prologue, the public must develop a solid grasp of what happened during the final year of the Trump presidency. That is something our guest today, Jonathan Carroll, can help us do. He is the author of Betrayal, Final Act of the Trump Show the explosive new book on the final year of the Trump presidency. I can't wait to get into all the revelations of the book and how Jonathan got the scoops that he did. But first, let me tell you a little bit about the impressive background of our guest today. Jonathan Carroll is the chief Washington correspondent for ABC News and the co-anchor of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. John has covered every major beat in Washington, D.C., including the White House, the Capitol, the Pentagon, and the State Department. He has reported from the White House under four presidents and 14 press secretaries. He is the former president of the White House Correspondents Association. Thank you for being with us today, John. Thank you for having me. Of course. So uh, I want to start by reading an excerpt from one of your interviews um, with the former president for betrayal. Um, You asked Trump, were you worried about Pence during the siege, uh, January 6th? Were you worried about his safety 
Trump replied, no, I thought he was well protected. I had heard he was in good shape. You then said, because you heard these chants, that was terrible. I mean, you know, those to which Trump replied, well, the people were very angry. And then you interjected saying, they were saying, hang Mike Pence. And then Trump responded, because it's common sense. Um, You begin your book with that excerpt. Tell us about the context of this excerpt, when it occurred, and what that interview was like for you, as Trump told you that it's basically common sense to yell, hang Mike Pence. This was an interview that took place on March 18th, so it was nearly two months after he left the White House. It was at Mar-a-Lago, and it was uh, conducted in the middle of the lobby um, of of Mar-a-Lago, which is this incredibly large high ceilings, ornate, used to be the living room for, uh, for Marjorie Merriweather Post, the, uh, the woman who lived at Mar-a-Lago and had Mar-a-Lago built. Um, and the interview was just as dinner was about to begin. So uh, all of his guests saw us sitting there in the middle of the lobby uh, walking by. I mean, Mar-a-Lago is, it's not a massively huge place, but it's, it's a big enough place that we could have certainly had a private... <laughs> <laughs> a private place to conduct this interview. Uh, but he wanted uh, to be on display uh, and wanted his guests to see that he was being interviewed. And there were a couple of times before we got to that section of the interview where uh, somebody would go by and he would say, look, this is the great Jonathan Carl of ABC News. Um, he was trying to impress his uh, his guests, which is funny because he's called me a lot of other names uh, that are not <laughs> great. Um but um, but I you know I I this was a this was a very different kind of interview than an interview that you would conduct uh, for a for a television program like you know like this week our Sunday show um, on ABC. Um, this was an interview for a book. There were no cameras. I just had my tape recorder uh, you know sitting on the table, and it was all on the record. Um, and you know I I really wanted to get inside his head about what he was thinking, how he assessed January 6th. He hadn't really talked about it yet uh, publicly. Um, and before I got to Pence, I was I asked him about, uh, I'm sure you remember that on the evening of January 6th, he tweeted a message to his supporters saying, remember this day forever. Um, which still, that I mean, I mean, I, I at this at that moment, I had no idea what what did he want them to remember. I mean, I'm going to remember that day forever. I, I'm sure you two will remember that day forever. But he seemed to be implying a much different context, um, as if it was a day to be proud of. Um, so I asked him about that, and he started speaking glowingly about January sixth. I got the impression that it was like one of the finest days of his presidency in his mind. I mean, I don't, he did, he did, he did say he was specifically talking about the, the huge crowd that came out to see him speak at the events in the ellipse, you know, his that speech he gave before. Well, really it was still going on as, as, as they started moving on the Capitol. Um, you know, he, he, he told me it was the biggest crowd he had ever spoken before, which was quite a statement. I mean, it's a big crowd, but I mean, I wanted to get Sean Spicer on the line and see if, uh, if he could assess to that. Um, but um, he, he did say that it was marred a little later on, and, and I don't know what he meant by marred. I don't know if he meant the, the attacks on the police officers uh, or if he meant um, Pence failing to throw out the uh, – you know, the electoral votes of the challenge states. I kind of think that's what he meant. But anyway, then I turned to Pence and, and he 
as you can as you can see from that excerpt, it's it's a conversation. I'm really trying to just kind of draw him out. I'm not arguing with him. I'm not, you know, I I I, I want to know his thoughts, and those were his unvarnished um, thoughts, uh, unfiltered, and it stunned me, and it still stuns me. And I wrote it in the book. I, I put it at the very beginning of the book for that reason. That's the first words you read when you open up uh, betrayal. But I come back to it in the um, in the final chapter. Because what I wonder is, what I wondered as I was writing, I still wonder now, is all those Republicans uh, in positions of power and authority who continue to support Trump and placate him, even those who privately, you know, think that the election stuff was madness, but continue publicly uh, to support him. Would, will they still do it after they read and after they hear? Because I also have the audio and I put the audio out as well. I put the audio in the audio book and I've, and I've played it on ABC and I, and I put it out. Um, will, will you, Mr. Republican leader or Mrs. Ms. Republican leader, can you still support him after you've heard him now on tape offering a defense and a justification of the people who literally were calling for the execution of his loyal vice president? And I, I hope uh, that every Republican in a position of power and authority who was interviewed at some point is asked about this quote, because I think they all need to be on the record. What, what do you, how do you, you know, Trump said a lot of really crazy and disturbing things over the years that are controversial and everything else. But to me, this was actually different. Uh, this was beyond anything that he had done before. Do you think it would have any impact on the voters since it seems to have had no impact as you would have predicted on the leaders of the Republican Party? So I, I, don't, I think that, that uh, there's a, a segment of his base that truly um, won't change their minds about anything. They, you know, as, as he said in January of 2016, well before he got into the White House, a year before he got into the White House, uh, you know, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and they would still love me. Um, so some people won't have their minds changed, but I think, I think minds can be changed. I really do. And it doesn't need to be huge numbers um, to, to have a difference, uh, to make a difference. This whole book, the entire thrust of this book, I mean, I think it's a devastating portrayal of of what he tried to do in 2020 and how he really did betray the, the very system that enabled him to be president of the United States. What an honor. What an incredible position of responsibility. And he betrayed it all, tried to destroy it. I think that's devastating. And if you just come out and say that, you know, people, wow, this is just the media, you know, blah, blah, blah. So what I tried to do in the book is to speak to the people that believed what he was saying about the election being stolen. And I tried to really not just say it's all a lie and, and to call them stupid and all that. No, I actually understand why a lot of people uh, came to believe it. I mean, it was confusing. Election night was very confusing. And it's because the states had a tangle of different laws and votes were coming in in different ways. And if you were watching... Mm you know, election coverage at 10 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night, you would have thought Donald Trump was on his way to a big victory. 
Um, and then if you went to sleep and you woke up in the morning and you were like, wait, what's going on? He's losing. Um, and there are reasons. And I, I, I take time to explain why all that is. And, and I also try to do it by, I mean, Bill Barr is a key character in, 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 in my book. Um, and he's somebody that the Trump base loves. At least they did. Um, and he certainly can't be, you know, portrayed as just another member of the liberal, you know, resistance or the media. I mean, he's, you know, he's the guy that defended Trump on all the Russia stuff and, and defended his political allies when they were, when they were facing prosecution. And he looked at all this stuff and I explained and I interviewed him and I got him, I, I convinced him to go on the record. So that was very important because, you know, at first the interview was going to be like most interviews at background, you know, senior administration official, former, blah, blah. But I, I, I said, I, I need your name on this stuff. And he, he finally agreed. Um, but he looked into all the major allegations that Trump was making, you know, the ballots under the table in Fulton County, the ballot dumps, uh, so-called, in, uh, in Detroit that, 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 that swayed the vote there um, in, in Michigan, the, uh, the, the, the allegedly out-of-state voters that were all voting in Nevada, the um, situation in Pennsylvania. And, and Barr looked at it all. And I, I, forgive me, you can, I guess you can bleep me out if I'm not allowed to say this, but he said it's bullshit. It was all bullshit. That's Bill Barr. So anyway, I, I so I think minds can be changed. I, I and I think they need to be changed. And I think you don't do it just by yelling at people and telling them they're dumb. No, I, I hope you're right, number one. And number two, I think what you've done is you have shown the facts rather than told the facts. And by doing that, that is an effective tool of advocacy and of of just persuasion. So I'm hoping that you're going to be successful in that. And, and, and if I can just say, it's interesting the word you used, advocacy. And as a journalist, and as a, a journalist who, I think I've been a journalist since I was in fifth grade. I probably <laughs> didn't get paid for it until much later. But, but I mean, that's kind of in, in, in the, my DNA. I would, have in, I would have kind of been repulsed by the idea of advocacy. That's not, I'm a journalist. I'm not, right. But you know what? In this case, I am, this is advocacy. And it's advocacy for, for the truth. And I think that's okay for um, and, a journalist I, to be an advocate for yes, truth. And that's, yes. I, I changed my word after I said advocacy. I said persuasion and information. Let's change this. it to that you inform in a way that sets out the facts, not because you're telling people what to believe, but because you're yeah. showing them what the facts are. And maybe that's yeah. a, a more accurate way within the context but, of journalism. But, but in, in this context, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. I don't mind the word advocacy because this is advocacy to, to get the story right, you know, and, 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 and to convince people uh, to, to, to see the light and see what, it, what is true and, and to see the facts and to see the facts for themselves and not to be um, deceived because there's so much misinformation out there. Um, you begin with that powerful excerpt in your book, and in that same section of the book, you describe this stunning moment of Trump's life at Mar-a-Lago, writing, um, quote, how often does the former president stroll along the colonnade on his way to dinner as members of his club rise to their feet in rapturous applause every night, he told me, every night. Um, what does that reveal about Trump as a person, and was there anything else that you found really disturbing while you were with him at Mar-a-Lago? Well, what it says about him as a person is it, it really is, and, and you know this and you see this, but but you might think it's an act or something, but it really is the core of his being is 
praise for self. I mean, he is, it is all about Donald Trump and Donald Trump's greatness. And I think it is driven from the, and this actually explains his behavior after the election. Uh, he has created very successfully over the course of his life. I mean, people try to say, ah, you know, he, had, he was bankrupt. He's all a big fraud. He wasn't really a billionaire. Look, the guy has been very successful. I mean, not only does he have that big building on Fifth Avenue with his name on it um, and, and a lot of other buildings, by the way, but he, he ended up at the White House. I mean, he's, he's done something here. Um, he's been successful and he believes that the key to his success um, I don't even know if this is a conscious belief, but this is. But he knows that the key to his success is that he is perceived as the guy that is the ultimate deal maker, the ultimate rich guy, the ultimate big developer, the ultimate winner. He's the guy that doesn't lose. Um, so uh, the the idea that he would lose an election. And the people would see he lost an election and that his supporters, all those people with red hats, all those people cramming into his rallies, the idea that they would see him as a loser, I think is just devastating to Donald Trump. Um, you know, he, look, I, I've covered politicians who have suffered really painful and difficult losses uh, and who have had their, actually their finest hours immediately following those losses. I think of Al Gore yeah. when out the, you know, the right after the Supreme court put an end to the Florida recount. And he gave, I think the speech of his career conceding and wishing George W. Bush. Well, I think of John McCain after he lost to Barack Obama in 2008. It's one of the best speeches, maybe the best speech McCain ever gave. Go back and, and watch it. If you, if, if, if you don't recall it, um, you know, these are grace notes. These are, th th this, yeah. this reveals character and this makes you respect the person. But Bob Dole just died. I mean, Bob Dole, after he lost, not necessarily um, a, a speech he gave, but, uh, but his appearance on Saturday Night Live right after <laughs> the loss where he showed something he hadn't really shown us in public before with a tremendous ability to make fun of himself, you know, and, and everybody's like, where was that Bob Dole? I mean, Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney showed a side of himself after he lost in 2012. But Donald Trump was somehow absolutely incapable of doing anything remotely like that because he believed that if he was shown to be a loser, that it would all come crashing down because that was the that was the secret sauce. That was that was the that was the secret behind his power, not just his political power he amassed, but his entire brand. I'm the winner. I'm the guy that never loses. Interesting. Um, let's move to the first chapter of your book, which deals with the early days of COVID. Um, and you had a front row seat there because you were covering the White House then. And so you saw the administration's response. You described Trump becoming aware of COVID and simultaneously wanting Johnny McEntee to head personnel. So I found this whole episode quite fascinating. Um, McEntee is not someone who is known widely. So can you just for our audience describe who he is and then 
given his background, why did Trump want him to be the head of personnel? John McEntee is the most important person in the Trump White House, certainly in 2020, that most people have never heard of. <laughs> um, he was, and, and it's really interesting because I, I, I wrote a, I wrote a book called Front Row at the Trump Show that came out just as the pandemic hit, um, which was about my kind of story covering Trump. He's somebody I met back in the 90s and had covered him way back then, and, and I'd covered the whole the full arc of his campaign. Um, but McEntee is a guy that I had met back when Trump only had about a half dozen employees on his campaign. He had just started, and um, they had a little – you know, kind of a kind of a, an office with no people, but but looked like a traditional campaign office, except it was Trump Tower on the fifth floor. Uh, and McAtee was one of the first guys I met on the Trump campaign. He he had, he had been just out of college a couple of years. He was a quarterback at UConn, and he had been he had a really junior job at Fox, working in the newsroom. And he had uh, you know kept on like peppering Trump, trying to get him you know with with notes and people, you know, just, just persistently trying to come on, offering to work for free and everything else. And he ends up working at the, being one of the first employees on the campaign. And I met him back then and he just struck me as an incredibly earnest, um, eager to please guy um, who uh, wanted to, you know, really, really wanted to be in the, in the mix. And he, he sees me, he introduces himself, he introduces himself, I'm the trip director. I actually still have his the business card he gave me. And I'm quite sure he made the business card himself because <laughs> Trump was way too cheap at this point to be issuing business cards to employees on his campaign, let, let alone somebody that, you know, had just come on, you know, walked in from Fox News. Um, but he uh, he gave me a whole tour of the place, including the, the, the set for The Apprentice uh, and the floor above, which was still there. Uh, you know, had a lot of dust on it and hadn't been used in, a, in almost a year. Uh, but the set for the Celebrity Apprentice was still up there, the big boardroom and all the, the whole thing. Um, fake elevators, by the way. I mean, it's, it's really oh. something. But um, that's where NBC shot it. was right up there. Anyway, McEntee ends up being basically, um, you know, the guy that carries Trump's bags. He did it in the campaign. He did it at the White House. It's not a, um, you know, it's not a, he wasn't, he wasn't a pipe powered guy at all but he was but he was always there always willing to work for Trump volunteering to work 7 days a week went at the White House Trump would go and play golf he would volunteer to you know be the guy that had to sit there and wait in the clubhouse while he went and and, and kind of I mean he was always always there but he got fired um by John Kelly in uh, uh after after about 6 or 7 months of the Trump presidency he got fired and he got fired because of issues in his FBI background check. And it was quite embarrassing. He left. He didn't even go and get his coat and, and stuff from his desk. He just mm-hmm. slinked his way out of the White House. And he really wasn't heard from for a couple of years. Ironically, and this you'll see why this is ironic, uh, his immediate job was uh, to work for Anthony Scaramucci. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he worked for Scaramucci for some time at Skybridge Capital. Uh, as Scaramucci was turning on Trump and becoming Trump's loudest, uh, you know, former ally, current critic. Um, so anyway, fast forward to the pandemic. Uh, John Kelly's long gone. Uh, Mick Mulvaney is on his last days as, as chief of staff. Clearly his name, days are, are numbered, acting chief of staff. And McEntee is back. And now he's 29 years old, so he's got a little bit more, you know, a little more gravitas to him, I guess. 
and he comes in and um, nobody's clear what he's going to do. He actually ends up sitting in his old seat. The, the, the body, they call it the body guy, you know, the person that carries the president's bags. The, they don't actually have an office. It's a junior position, but very important. You know, it's, it's a, you, you a lot of face time with the president. And they, they share desks out, right outside the Oval Office. So if you go outside the door, you know, one of, there's one of the doors in the Oval Office. You go outside the door, there's a room called the Outer Oval, and there's like three desks. And the president's secretary is there. And then there's a couple of desks that are shared by the people that play this role as body. It's always only body guy. I haven't heard about a body gal for, for uh, it hasn't really quite happened yet, but it's it. Um, and um, anyway, so he, he goes and he sets up in the same, same spot. Uh, just puts, you know, gets part of a desk. But I, I recount this incredible story in the Oval Office well, it's actually in the dining room right, right adjacent to the Oval Office. That's the, the, the door on the opposite side of where the outer Oval is. Um, and uh, where Trump is meeting with Mulvaney and he says, hey, I want to put Johnny in charge of uh, presidential pers- uh, personnel. And what he's referring to is the Presidential Personnel Office, PPO. And you might – most people don't know what it is. It's, it's the most important human resources office in the U.S. government. It's in charge of all the hiring and firing of every – political appointee in the executive branch. So this is, you know, from the CIA director to the ambassador to China, uh, to the secretary of state, uh, you know, to the, uh, to the head of the environmental protection agency. I mean, it's, 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 it's the full range of political appointees. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a, the, the PPO is a staff of about 30 people and it's, uh, you know, it's a very important job. Um, and Mulvaney is thinking, you know, this is crazy. Johnny's never hired anybody in his life. <laughs> He's never hired or fired anybody. And now you're going to put him in charge of, uh, <laughs> so, uh, he, he, he calls in his deputy, um, uh, uh, who, who comes in, who's got, who actually oversees this office and, 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 um, her name is Emma, and Emma is is telling Trump, "Look, I've never disagreed with any with you. I've never, but I have to ask you, please don't do this. This is a very important role, and Johnny's just just not qualified for it." And Trump flips out, starts swearing at both of them, and says, "Damn it! I won't say all the words he says, but you people never do anything I ask." And with that, John McEntee is in charge of all of the personnel for the for the executive uh, branch political appointees, and Mulvaney is within a couple of weeks fired, gone. And what John Mack, and this is why he's important. This is why he's important. Sorry for the long preamble, but I think it's a wild story that most people don't, don't, don't know. So McEntee, um, basically, first thing he does is he clears out all of the, uh, all the employees in the presidential personnel office and hires his friends. I mean, there's a guy... There's a guy from um, who, who had kind of volunteered a bit on the on, on the president's campaign in Iowa who took a liking to McEntee and his his family knew him from California. He actually so he, he was at the University of Iowa and he hadn't even graduated yet. And McEntee puts him in and puts him in a top position within PPO. Uh, there there's a couple other people that had not graduated from college yet. And then he hires. Um, some some women uh, through uh, through Instagram, it, like influencers uh, who had shown themselves to be Trump supporters, and he direct messages a couple of them. One of them actually worked for the had performed as a rocket 
you know, uh, in, in the Thanksgiving day, Macy's Thanksgiving parade, performed with the Rockettes. She was a dancer, had never done anything, you know, outside of, uh, outside of that. Um, and one senior administration official described to me this group as um, the Dungeons and Dragons uh, and the Rockettes. It was, it was, it was further described to me by this official as, um, you know, very attractive women and guys that would be no threat to Johnny and going after those women. And that's his staff. And what he does with those people is he sets up a series of interviews across the, uh, the executive branch with all these top officials. And he sends these, these, these kids out there, almost all of them are in their twenties. Like I said, some had not graduated from college yet and they're loyalty interviews. And he's searching for any sign of disloyalty or lack of enthusiastic devotion to Donald Trump. And I call it a purge. And it was a purge. Uh, people were, were asked about their voting records. They, they, they searched through voting records. They found out you know, some person at the justice department, they had voted in a democratic primary a few years ago. Why did you do that? Um, uh, you know, they, they looked through their social media postings. They asked, you know, really basic, really senior officials, the head of the antitrust division at the justice department. This is a really important job. These are the, you know, I mean, this is like one of the most important jobs, uh, in, 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 in the executive branch. He's asked, uh, you know, from these kids come in, uh, do you support the policies of the Trump administration? Like a, like an open-ended question. He's like, well, I'm, I'm carrying out the policies. That's what, that's what I do. Uh, and, uh, and, and McEntee ultimately orchestrates the decapitation of the entire civil le- leadership at the Department of Defense. He gets Mark Esper fired right after the election, not just Mark Esper, the chief of staff of the Pentagon, the undersecretary for, for intelligence, uh, the undersecretary for policy, and a whole range of other senior officials, all fired in the course of two days and put in with people that McEntee felt would be totally loyal uh, to Trump. And, and the reason why all this is important is because as Trump does all that he does, he takes his, what I call his darkest turn after the election, there is nobody around him who is willing to push back, even ask some difficult questions. Um, there's nobody who is going to challenge him on anything. Uh, and if they are left, they are basically cowed into silence. Uh, by you know McEntee's enforcers, there were people, and more than more than a few, who described to me McEntee's operation as like a, an internal secret police force, like the Stasi wow. of uh, of East Germany, uh, re, you know, trying to get out and purge anybody that wasn't deemed sufficiently loyal. So that's why, as you write, January sixth couldn't have happened without McEntee. And I, I also just, I can't help but comment on what you've just said, which is showing the person who said, I only hire the best, hired McEntee and the Rockettes and Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, Dungeons and Dragons. And, and yeah. because this is an intergenerational podcast with 18-year-old Victor and a slightly older me, um, I have to point out not that- much. This mean, Not is, much. Not know. much, of course. Uh, you're too kind. But- um, I guess there was an intergenerational approach in the White House, which probably isn't where you want that intergenerational approach. You don't want 20-year-olds running the, the White House personnel office. But anyway, um, that, that is a most um, 
most interesting thing. And I, I guess one last question about the COVID, which is you sat in on a lot of the briefings and ab about COVID. And we now know that there was a lot of misinformation. Uh, and that's just a fact. Uh, yes. How dangerous were those briefings? I think they were really dangerous. Um, you know, we, we all remember the one where he talked about using disinfectant, studying whether you could you could use it, you know, inject it, uh, somehow use it inside, uh, whatever the hell he said. Um, I was at that briefing. Um, that that was obviously dangerous. Um, and the Maryland, for instance, the Maryland uh, uh, Public Health Agency had to put out a statement telling people, no, 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 do not try to ingest or inject or in any other way a disinfectant. Um, but it wasn't that, that that's just the most obvious it but it was much yeah. much deeper than that um you know he he repeatedly downplayed the um the dangers posed by the uh by the by the virus he can repeatedly said it was just like the flu uh it's, he suggested the flu was actually worse in some cases um and then you know, when I was also at the briefing when the uh, CDC director announced the uh, the mask mandate. I'm not mandate, but but the recommendation that people wear masks, which was a belated recommendation. It came too late, as we now know, um, but it was an important one. And I watched as uh, Robert uh, Redfield made this announcement and then stepped to the side, and then Trump walked to the podium, and he declared that he wasn't going to wear a mask. He just completely took the wind out of it. Yeah. How many people took his cue instead of what the CDC was saying? Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of misinformation, and 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 you know I think that it I think that it really set us back a, a, a lot, yeah. and uh, and and made the pandemic, which was going to be bad anyway. Let's be let's be honest. No matter what, if Trump did everything right, this was going to be bad. Um, but I think it made it worse. So in addition to COVID, 2020 also brought the Black Lives Matter protests in response to the killing of George Floyd. Um, you begin your chapter on that by talking about a somewhat disturbing experience you had on May 29th, shortly after the George Floyd murder, in which, you know, as you were walking home, you were told to return to the White House. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that fits in with the administration's response to the Black Lives Matter protests? Yeah, this was unlike anything that I'd ever, I'd ever witnessed at the White House. And I've been in the White House on and off as a reporter under, you know, first Bill Clinton, uh, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, uh, Donald Trump, and now, and now some with, uh, with Biden. So I, I've seen a lot, but I never saw anything like this. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was a protest in D.C. Uh, marching towards the White House, and the protesters um, – uh, pushed back through the uh, through the police lines and started really approaching the White House complex itself. And um, you know, I was this was this was right after I got done. We we have our six thirty newscast, World News Tonight. I had just finished, and I was walking to get out of the uh, northwest gate of the White House. And um, as I was walking in that direction, I see uh, uh, two uh, uniformed Secret Service officers. Uh, rushing through the gate, clearly, clearly troubled. I mean, it looked like they had been like, you know, 
sprayed with tear gas or something um, and uh, rushed into the guard shack that I have to walk by to get out. And so I knew something really bad was going on, but I, and then I was stopped. You can't go out. You've got to get back in uh, to the, um, to, to the, to the building itself. Uh, now I've been at the white house where I've been locked in the white house before. Um, this happens if somebody has jumped the fence or if there's uh, you know a, a bomb threat or so this is this that, that kind of thing has happened before. So what happens? I got in and they sh- and they locked the door and you're locked in the press area of the White House, the briefing room and the area behind it where reporters have desks and and, and small offices. Um, so I'm stuck there. It's like seven or seven thirty at night. Don't know the extent of what's happening outside, but you know it seems pretty disturbing. Um, what I hadn't realized is the reason why they were so, and, and, I, and I write in the book that I saw something in the Secret Service that I hadn't seen before, which is I, I thought I detected some fear, uh, it, which he, I mean, the, 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 these people are pros and they've seen it all. But it, it's, this seemed to be a, a step up. Um, so what I, what I found out is that uh, protesters actually um, breached uh, part of the White House complex, not the White House, not not the literal grounds where the White House itself is, but but an annex building for the Treasury Department next door, which is part of the same same security perimeter. So um, I walked out of my little office in the White House, the ABC booth, and I figured I would go and try to get some more information from the press secretary or anybody else I could find in the West Wing. So I, you know, that blue door right by the um, podium. You see that the president comes out or the press secretary comes out. So I, I walked through that door. That door was open, which I thought was interesting because the door to go outside was locked. So, okay, that's good. And there's another door right on the other side of that where you walk up this, this hallway and you go just 50 steps or so. You know, you're at the door to the press secretary's office. And as I go through that second door and start walking up towards the, uh, the hallway also, by the way, like another, you know, 50 or so paces past the press secretary's office is the Oval Office. I mean, you're very, it's very, the, the West Wing is not very big. Um, and I, as I started walking up, I see this uniformed Secret Service officer who is usually sitting at a desk there, uh, basically to make sure everybody's got proper ID. Because again, it's so close to the Oval Office. Um, and the officer is usually sitting there and it's like perfunctory and, hey, how you doing? You walk by. In this case, she was standing up and she had a mask on, which we all, you know, I mean, Trump staff didn't always have masks, but, you know, I mean, we, we had masks. But she had a mask on and she had a, 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 a rifle, like a very large assault style weapon that she was holding in her, in her hands. And I said, can I go up? And of course, I knew the answer before. <laughs> but I mean, it's just instinct. So I was like, oh, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go back. I'll turn back. And go. But it was so frightening to see gun, uh, you know, guns drawn uh, just down the hall from the Oval Office. The officer, not just with the, the weapon, but weapon drawn, but with a mask. It was like the threats are everywhere. Uh, it just, we felt besieged. We, what we now know is that that was the moment when Trump was taken and put into the underground bunker beneath the White House mm-hmm. for his own safety. It was probably an overreaction because again, the, 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 uh, 
the the protesters had not really breached the White House itself. It had been an annex and all that, but and it didn't last all that long. But it really set the the tone for what was to come in the days following. Yeah. So about that, you walk readers through the administration's response to the Black Lives Matter protests, um, including the time just after the death of Mr. Floyd, when um, people like Defense Secretary Mark Esper, um, Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley and Attorney General Barr were basically summoned to the White House. And um, when they got into the Oval Office, the president told them that they that he wanted an immediate deployment of 10,000 active duty troops uh, to deal with the protests beginning in D.C., this doesn't seem like a normal response to protests. So tell us, I guess, what you learned about what all those participants had to say about Trump's decision and perhaps their reaction to. I mean, it's, it's a it's a incredibly disturbing story. You get a the portrait that emerges is of a president who saw the protests that had turned violent. Some in D.C., but also what was happening in Portland and what had been happening um, in in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, and there and there were there, there were there was violence. I mean, most of the there were a lot of peaceful protests all around the country, but there were protests that had turned violent, and there were you know uh, obviously it was really bad in Minneapolis where uh, rioters actually stormed and took over a, a whole entire police precinct. So that you know it, there was. There was unrest and there was serious unrest. Minnesota handled it um, by bringing out the National Guard and actually getting the situation under control uh, fairly quickly. In fact, already by, uh, by June 1st when Trump does his famous walk across Lafayette Square. But the disturbing thing is that Trump sees this as an opportunity to show he's a strong man. Now, there's also an important political context here, which is he is running for re-election and Every poll is showing him losing badly, trailing the presumptive nominee for the Democrats, Joe Biden. And this is his chance to show he's the strong man. And he wants to not just put out National Guard troops, which offer as, you know, act as kind of a support for local police. He wants to uh, get active duty military to come in and, and, and basically impose he doesn't use the word, but basically martial law. Um, and Esper and Milley are, you know, know that if he, that the president can do this, he has the authority to do this if he invokes something called the Insurrection Act, which gives him the authority to use. Because active duty U.S. military are, are meant to be used against foreign threats, not domestic threats. Um, but he's able to do this if he invokes the Insurrection Act something that's very rarely been done. Um, it was done briefly during the LA riots um, by, uh, by George H.W. Bush. Um, but it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a very unusual, very unusual step. And given what Trump was saying, Milley and Esper were really worried about the image of U.S. for the possibility of U.S. forces being told to do combat against American citizens on the streets of Washington, D.C. and other cities across the country. Um, so I, I describe in detail these, these meetings um, where Trump is not hearing it. Barr, Barr, Bill Barr, by the way, is also worried about this, and he's trying to placate Trump by telling him that, look, the Justice Department has law enforcement personnel. We can help out. National, and, and, and the other thing, you know, National Guard, we, we don't – and. Millie, the, here, here's the here's the I think the most amazing thing that I learned about all this is 
I remembered at the time that Millie had, I, we didn't know at the time the details of, of these discussions, obviously. Uh, and what we knew was that Millie had um, actually uh, started mobilizing active duty military troops uh, from several locations, from Fort Drum in New York, uh, from Fort Riley in Kansas, uh, the 82nd Airborne uh, was also uh, mobilized and brought into the Washington D.C. area. And Millie got hammered by you know in, in 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 the press about this. You know what is he doing? Is he preparing to you know send in the forces on you know on you know, American citizens in D.C. and what I learned is that's actually what, not what he was doing. What he was doing is he was trying to basically fool Trump. Those forces weren't coming into the city itself. They went to Fort Belvoir, which is, you know, some 20 or so miles outside of D.C., uh, to uh, Joint Base Andrews, which is in Maryland, again, outside, well outside the city. And, and, and the negative coverage was actually exactly what Esper wanted so Trump could see it. And, and then he wouldn't, he wouldn't take that that next step of invoking the Insurrection Act. Um, but really, you know, I, I describe in, in detail how Esper particularly um, felt that he was worried he would be fired because he was resisting the, the Insurrection Act, but, but was trying desperately to keep his job because he was worried about what Trump would do. And, and he saw his job as trying to, you know, he was, this is, you know, this is why Johnny McEntee wanted him fired was basically to keep Trump from creating a, an actual civil war on the streets of American cities. He, that, he, that's what he saw as his role. There were all kinds of foreign threats that didn't go away, but he saw as the biggest threat to American national security was the guy sitting in the Oval Office. And of course, Esper was correct to be worried because he did get fired, and he was correct in worrying about what would happen if he got fired because the acting sec def became Chris Miller, who was, I think we would all have to agree, not someone with traditional credentials for that position, and who was in charge on January 6th and did not send troops when they were actually needed to protect the Capitol. But let's, let's move, before we run out of time, to a couple of other issues. One is, uh, I want to look at your chapter called Countdown Disaster, uh, which talks about the November 2020 election, uh, including all the things that happened right around that time, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett's very speedy nomination confirmation and her swearing in, which became a super spreader event in the Rose Garden. Um, and we just learned, of course, something new uh, from Mark Meadows, which is that uh, Trump had tested positive before his first debate with Biden. And so all these, what I would consider, and I think most people would consider, bad things are happening. How did this, you know, how did that go on? How did it, wh what allowed this, what empowered this to happen? Well, you, you had developed a, a situation at the White House where there was no, there was, there was, Officials simply didn't feel that they had an obligation to tell the truth. Lying had become routine. Uh, the, the, the goal was, again, promoting the interests of Donald Trump and doing that with whatever means were necessary. 
um, the idea that he was able, first of all, the idea that he himself as, as president would want to go on after he tested positive um, is, is mind-blowing. Meadows has tried to yes. uh, explain himself uh, by saying, well, it was a false positive because then he went and retested it and it was, uh, and it came back negative. By the way, given the track record of these folks, I, I don't believe, I won't believe that there was actually a negative test after it until I see it. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to, and I've never heard of retesting the same sample with a different machine. What, what is this? Mm. It's a very strange, but put that aside. There, tests are not perfect, but the error that happens almost always when there is an error is it's a false negative, not a false positive. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the virus is present, it's shown. What happens in some tests is they miss the virus. That's the false. So it's, I, I, I saw an analysis uh, today that it is 150 times more likely to have a false mm-hmm. negative than a false positive. So this guy... I mean, by this guy, I mean Donald Trump, the president of the United States at the time, tests positive for the virus. Shut it down. Quarantine. Figure it out. Get a PCR test, the more reliable. Because the the retest, by the way, was another one of these what we call antigen tests, which again are less reliable, but in the sense that they don't detect the virus as reliably, not that they give you false positives. Um, So I, I... suspected this from the start because they were refusing to answer, you know, the president's doctor, uh, Conley, uh, refused, uh, to, to answer when the last negative test was, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the white house press secretary refused to answer questions. So I, you know, I, I had suspected this. And when I was writing the book, I was actually told specifically what Meadows is now saying in his book, which is, that there was an, an initial uh, positive test, that he had tested positive for COVID, Trump. And of course, we and also know that he avoided being tested before the debate by being yes. late. And Well, that- yes, and, but, but, you know, it, it, was, an, it was an honor system. <laughs> Funny when people are dishonorable <laughs> to be in, have an honor system. So I, I wouldn't, I know that's been, I wouldn't read, too much into that. Uh, the, um, the, the the campaigns were both told that everybody needed to be tested uh, in advance. There wasn't an expectation that they would be tested when they landed. They were all to be tested in advance. And and it was an honor system that they would do that. Everybody else, you know, like me, I was there as a journalist. You know, we, we all got tested. But, but put that aside... Um, I, I was told exactly this, what, what, what Meadows is now saying, not by Meadows, by somebody else who didn't have direct knowledge, but was very reliable and would have had secondhand knowledge. So I couldn't put it in the book, uh, but I spent months trying to track it down to get it to a point where it could be reliably reported. And I was almost there when I spoke to Mark Meadows. You know what Mark Meadows told me? Not true. Never happened. And now he writes it in his book. Wow. And of course he's... I mean, these people can't be trusted 
to tell the truth about whether or not it's day or night. Um, I mean, it's, it's the, 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 the cavalier nature, the cavalier way that they can say things that are flatly untrue is astounding. I have covered many different White Houses and campaigns, Capitol Hill. I, I have seen people shade the truth, spin, try to try to mislead. But the, you know, usually, particularly at the White House, there is a sense of an obligation you cannot actually lie, flatly, totally lie. You might try to, you know, put the put the best spin on things. Um, but you know, to see Kaylee McEnany on a routine basis at her briefings come out and say stuff that was just not true and demonstrably and totally not true. That's, that's unusual. <laughs> it wasn't unusual in the Trump white house, but over the, that's unusual. Yeah. I want to get to election night and the actual election. Um, but as a prelude, I want to ask you, how early did you think it was clear that Trump was not going to accept the results of the election? And should journalists have done more to alert the American public to this possibility? Um, there was, I, I thought it was pretty clear because actually he had said it. Um, he had said, uh, you know, we're yeah. going to win. The only way we can lose is if they steal it from us. That was a that was something he had said in slightly different words uh, uh, several times before election day. And, um, you know, we, we reported that. We, we made note of that. Then there was a uh, there was a story by Jonathan Swan of Axios, uh, of, you know, before the election. I forget the exact date. It's in, I, I quote it because there was a significant moment uh, in the book. It was during the final weeks. Um of the campaign that said that there was a specific strategy uh, that, uh, that, that, that if, if Trump didn't win, they were going to declare victory. Um, and what's funny is, I mean, not funny, what's sick, I guess, is Trump was asked about that report uh, at one of his campaign events shortly after it went online and he denied it. But of course, that's exactly what he did. Yeah. And when he, I was on set, we were doing live, of course, round the clock coverage on ABC News. I was on our ABC, you know, campaign headquarters set when Trump made his speech at 2.30 in the morning uh, in the East Room of the White House on election night and said, you know, frankly, we did win the election. Um, and I, I quote at length in the book, actually, because it was something I felt like I had an obligation to do. Um, uh, to, to explain to everybody who was listening to our broadcast that, you know, that's, we don't know who's won the election yet. And these votes are going to be counted and it's going to take time. And we will know the winner. We don't know the winner now. And Trump was wrong to say that. And he suggested that he was going to somehow get the Supreme Court to stop the counting of votes. This is what he said. Go back to the, listen yeah. to that speech. I think that that, by the way, is the single most dangerous speech that Donald Trump ever delivered. And I think it's more dangerous than the speech he delivered on January 6th, which has been mentioned so much um, and dissected. Go go back to the speech on election night. That's 
that's the speech that set in motion the events that led to the uh, insurrection of the Capitol. How many people in the administration do you think actually supported President Trump when he declared victory on election night? Um, was it more than not? I mean, like, how many do you think believed the big lie then, as a matter of fact? I, I don't think many believed it. And I think many of them thought that he would come around. They told me at the time, oh, you know, he'll, he'll come around. Uh, but go back and look at the video of that. Uh, one thing that I found troubling, among many other things, is the people in the room who stand up and applaud when he says, we won the election. And I cite a couple of them in my book. Um, these are people who are given position of public trust by the American people in one way or the other. Um, one I cite is Newt Gingrich. I mean, guy was Speaker of the House. To see him standing and applauding at that moment. Uh, but maybe you think, okay, Newt's become, you know, whatever he's become. Um, but Alex Azar, who was the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, who was the you know, critical role, important role in, 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 in our response to the pandemic, he was standing there applauding. Awful. So I don't want Awful. to leave the election until we talk about a little bit, just some of the crazy legal strategy that was being proposed by Clark Eastman and Jenna Ellis. And, yeah. um, and others. And others, So, um, which to me is one of the most dangerous parts. Uh, and it's hard to say, what's the most dangerous speech Donald Trump gave? It's hard to say what's the most dangerous strategy, but certainly a strategy that says we aren't going to count the actual people's votes we have a way around that. Seems to me one of the most dangerous. And what can you tell us about the players involved in this and uh, how close we came to something terrible happening? This idea of, um, and, and it was uh, all means necessary as a way to look at it, use whatever means he could possibly use to overturn the will of the voters. I'm glad you put it that way because that's what it is. People voted. Um, and there was a methodical effort to first get the states working through state legislators uh, who had supported Trump and whose people supported Trump, whose voters supported Trump, to get them to reconvene and to say that they were going to throw out the results of the election and instead of sending Biden's electoral votes to Washington, they would send Trump electoral votes. This was done um, in Michigan. This was done in Pennsylvania. This was done in Georgia. Uh, this was done in Wisconsin. There were efforts to do this in Nevada and Arizona. This was, this, was a, this was a coordinated and sustained effort. That's one prong. Then there was the effort to get Republican members of Congress to vote to reject uh, the votes that were there um, and to overdo it. And, 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 you know, they got a lot of, lot of, lot of house members signed on to that effort and, uh, and, a, and a fair number of senators, uh, not enough to, 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 to pull it off, but, but a fair number. And then finally, and this was the one that Trump really, Trump knew that the, that, that those first two were long shots, I think. 
Um, so the real strategy was to get Mike Pence because he's presiding over the counting, the ceremonial counting. They open the envelopes that have been sent in by the states. They read the uh, the tabulations, and the clerk records it. And then there's a and and Trump knew that Pence was going to be the one that was going to be uh, doing that. And he thought it'd be easy when you open the envelope for Michigan and it says X number of electoral votes for Joe Biden. That Pence should say, "Nope, we're throwing those out. They uh, they don't look right to me." And, I mean, the idea that he could do it is insane. I mean, the idea that one person can overturn the votes of tens of millions of Americans. I mean, come on. But that's, that's, what, he, that's what he did. And, and here's, here's why I think we came so close to, to a much greater crisis. What happens if Pence had done it? Now, you and I and every constitutional scholar, you know, who has studied this, will tell you we had no power to do it. But what 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 have you had? What does Nancy Pelosi do? Like grab the gavel and start banging them on that? I mean, what 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 happens? Oh well they go to the Supreme Court. Okay. The Supreme Court and then and then how when is that all adjudicated and 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 heard and the Supreme Court rules against the guy uh, in, in in the White House and the vice president and then the Supreme Court enforces that ruling how? Like the Supreme Court in what army? I, I think it's I mean, a dangerous concept, to put it mildly. And it yeah. does show one of the fundamental strengths and weaknesses of our constitutional government is that it is premised on the fact that people will obey the law. And even when it's clear that there are people like Donald Trump and his followers who will not follow the law, and that January 6th is just are, a prelude. Jill, you are you are 100% right. I think this is underappreciated. It was underappreciated by me, for sure. Yeah. Um, that our system, our entire system, we are, we, are, we, are, we are a system of laws. And there are ways, you know, the, the law can constrain people who break the law, and that's what it has done, and but what it can't, but ultimately, it depends on most people doing the right thing most of the time. And especially Same. most people in positions of authority from respecting and honoring the rules. And when the people responsible for enforcing the rules on a mass scale break the rules, the whole system breaks down. And that may be the fundamental difference between Richard Nixon and Watergate and Donald Trump and all of his scandals is that in the end, Richard Nixon believed in the rule of law and Donald Trump doesn't. So that, that's a very big difference. Uh, I, I want to make sure we have enough time. We have some more questions if you have a few more minutes to keep going. Um, uh, I have a few more minutes, sure. Yeah. Um, I, 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 we wanted to talk about some of the... Uh, documents that you have revealed in your book um, about pressure on Mike Pence uh, to overturn the election, about uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows sending Pence an email at the end of December, December 31st, containing a memorandum from Jenna Ellis uh, detailing how Pence could overturn the election. And you've, you've mentioned that. But you also, there was another memo uh, from Trump's loyal enforcer and uh, 
that's Johnny McEntee again, and he sent uh, a text message to Pence's chief of staff on New Year's Day on how Pence could also use his power to, to do this. Is there anything else you want to add to what's revealed in your book, um, and particularly in light of the fact that Mark Short, who was Pence's chief of staff, is now cooperating with the January 6th committee? Do you have any info that you could share as a preview with sure. our audience of what we might expect Mark Short to say? Well, um, you know, Mark Short, well, there's no more important advisor uh, to, uh, to, to Pence than Mark Short. He was his chief of staff, but he was also his, you know, his, his, his top advisor. Um, and I think it's very significant that he is cooperating and they're, you know, we, we obviously heard that Mark Meadows is no longer cooperating um, and he's declared all these privileges. He, he turned over a log of all of his um, or a lot of his emails, um, but, but, but didn't actually turn over the bodies, the body messages of, the, a lot, of many of them. But I can tell you that the Jenna Ellis memo, which I think is a very important piece of, of, of evidence because um, it outlines the plan for essentially a coup, um, was forwarded, as I described in the book, from, um, from Meadows, Meadows' email. Uh, I, I've seen it. I don't have a copy of it, but I've seen it. I've read it. I, I, I quote from it extensively in the book. Uh, it was emailed from Meadows to Mark Short. So Meadows may not be cooperating. Mark Short's got that email. I don't know if the committee has, has it yet, but I assume that was probably, if not the first thing, the second thing they asked for <laughs> from, um, you know, from, from Short. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's significant that it's not just Jenna Ellis, who was a campaign lawyer, but it, it's the guy that was the chief of staff at the White yeah. House. Uh, putting that, that, that implies like, this is what you're doing. This is our plan. You know, this is, and it was sent on New Year's Eve. So it was sent a week before yeah. all that goes down on January 6th. Yeah. Um, Johnny McEntee has also been subpoenaed by the committee. Um, I assume we haven't, you know, I assume he's, his level of cooperation is not going to be extensive. <laughs> um, but again, that text message exists yeah. on McEntee's uh, device, but also on Mark Short's device. Well, thank you for shedding light on all of that. And uh, while Eastman and Clark are getting, you know, a lot of attention for overturning the election, sounds like Jenna Ellis and Mark uh, and yes. McEntee should be um, getting some more. Uh, maybe yes. one last question, Victor. Yeah. So, I mean, just hearing you talk about everything, I think really underscores the fact for me that journalists are really the protectors of democracy and truth and facts. Because it's an intergenerational podcast, I'd love to end with the question of just what advice would you give to young journalists or anyone who's interested in journalism, given your extensive career in journalism, um, especially um, after the conversation we had today? First of all, it's a, it's a great line of work. Um, it, it can be a very hard one to, uh, uh, particularly as you're getting started. Um, you know, my, my first few jobs, I, I didn't really make enough to fully, uh, both have a place to stay and eat. So I, uh, I, you know, I, I crashed with some friends and I visited happy hours, uh, in, in DC <laughs> to get that free food. Um, you know, tried to get 
get into as many, uh, you know, embassy parties as I can get, whatever, you know, it could be, it could be kind of a challenge. Um, yeah. uh, but, um, but it's, it's, it's one of the few jobs where your, your, your task every day is to go in and to learn something and you get paid for it. Maybe in the beginning, not very much, but, uh, but so it's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great job. I, I would just say that um, even though I embraced the idea of advocacy in this in, in this sense of advocating for the truth about what happened on January 6th and with the election, um, as a journalist, remember that the credibility of journalism is you have an incredible you, you, you have a responsibility to, to, to maintain that. And you want to, report in a way that is going to be trusted by everybody. And, you know, that, that's your goal. And obviously there are some people that are never going to trust anything that comes out of a mainstream news organization. But put those people aside. You 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 don't take sides. Um, report, let me borrow a phrase that, uh, that Fox News actually used to use, uh, be fair and balanced. Um, there's no such thing as pure objectivity, but that should be your goal is to uh, is to be uh, is to be you know, pursue the truth in a way that uh, we're de- you're, we all have personal opinions, we all have political beliefs, um, but they, they shouldn't matter. They should be irrelevant, and uh, you know, be be trusted and be trusted to pursue the truth wherever the truth is going to lead you. Thank you, Jonathan Carroll, so much for being with us today, for having written a wonderful book that reveals by showing facts very much about who Donald Trump is and what would happen were he to run and win election in 2024 by past his prologue. And we appreciate your book, highly recommended to our audience. And thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Victor. And thank you, Jill. It's great to, great to spend some time talking to you. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this interview with Jonathan Carl as much as, much as Jill and I both did. We hope that you'll tune in again next week for another episode of iGen Politics and subscribe to us on YouTube or wherever you follow your podcasts. We hope you'll also give us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts too. That helps us a lot. Thanks so much and see you next week. And remember, the subscription is free. It just means you'll get reminded about when new episodes drop.